Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and it's Men's Health Month, and on this episode, we have a roundtable. Part of this roundtable is Dr. Stan Honing, who's clinical professor of urology and director of Men's Health, Department of Urology, Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Mark Sigmund, who's professor of urology at Brown, and Dr. Jay Sandlow, professor and vice chair at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Everyone, welcome to ASRM today. Thank you. So let's get into some of the new guidelines. So we've chosen Dr. Sigmund and Sandlow because they're both members of the guidelines committee. And the first question I have for you is, what do you think are the most important new guidelines and why? So let's start with Dr. Sandlow. So I would say that two of the most important things from the guidelines would be one, the fact that the male partner in an infertile couple needs to be evaluated. I think that we've shown with some of the literature that we use in the guidelines that there are many correctable causes of male factor fertility problems, as well as some important medical issues that can be diagnosed. And then another important statement was the fact that treatment of the male makes a difference both for outcomes in reproductive techniques, but also in just natural conception. And the guideline that Dr. Sandler was talking about initially is guideline number two, which says the initial evaluation of the male for fertility should include a reproductive history and should include one or more semen analysis. That was based on a strong recommendation and level B evidence. Dr. Sigmund, what are your thoughts on the most important new parts of the guideline? Well, I agree the evaluation of the male is important. In terms of what's new compared to old ones, there's some other areas that were brought up that really we never addressed in the past, which are really best practice statements, not guidelines. And one of those, or a couple of them are related to statements five and six, which discuss the health risks of just being infertile. And that's something we never addressed before. Uh, As many people know, there's a lot of correlation data indicating uh, infertile patients are more likely to have comorbidities, uh, testis cancer, higher mortality. The other area is to flip it in that those patients that have clear, defined, specific male infertility causes, such as Klinefelter's or whatever, have other health risks associated with those specific disorders. And those are addressed here that the the physician should consider counseling patients about those risks. And I think that's really important. And he's talking about guideline five and six, and both of those are based on level B grade evidence and their moderate recommendations in the male factor evaluation. So I think that's new and I think it's important. And I think it it just reiterates the importance of not only treating the semen analysis, but looking at the patient as a whole. One of the guidelines that comes up later involves therapy for FSH, with FSH, excuse me, in our male factor patients. And uh, this is not something that I did on a regular basis, but the guidelines suggest that FSH therapy should be considered in male factor patients. So Dr. Sigmund, how do you analyze this data? And did you offer FSH to your patients before the guidelines were released? And and what are your plans on uh, moving forward? Sure. The data is really based on some meta-analyses. And I think it's uh, important that what they looked at was total modal counts in response to FSH therapy and live birth. 
However, not all the studies in the meta-analyses indicate improvements in those two things. Some did, some didn't. So it's important to understand it's not consistent. The other caveats with this is that the cost to benefit is quite unclear because FSH therapy is very expensive. So the use of FSH is often compared to, well, should I use that or a serum, something like clomiphene? And there's no good studies comparing the two, which is another important point. You may ask, why would FSH work better than clomiphene? And we don't know that it does or it doesn't. This is just based on the data that currently is published. The final conclusion, I believe the wording was the clinician may consider as opposed to should consider. So not everybody should necessarily recommend this to patients. Personally, I have doubts about the use of FSH, and I often don't particularly in uh, my state where IVF is a mandated coverage and couples can very easily go on to ART as opposed to doing a rather prolonged FSH expensive therapy. That was based on grade B level evidence, and it was actually a conditional recommendation. So uh, not a strong recommendation, but a conditional recommendation. Have you looked at ASRM member benefits lately? ASRM is consistently adding value for physicians and other professionals in the field of reproductive medicine. Boost your career with access to ASRM's cutting-edge journals, free continuing education credits, access to ASRM QBoost, discounts on the annual Congress, and so much more. To learn more about the benefits of ASRM membership, visit www.asrm.org. Moving on to issues relating to age. How do you address paternal age with respect to male infertility, with respect to the new guidelines, Dr. Sibling? Do you tell every 40-year-old that he is at a higher risk of having genetic abnormalities in his offspring? How about 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds? Where do you where have you where, where do you come out with that at this point in time? Well, it, it's very clear that as the male ages, certain diseases and or conditions in the offspring do increase as the father is older. And that's very clear. It's also clear that the proportion of fathers, older fathers, is increasing out of the overall group of couples that conceive. And that was really the reason the committee wanted to address this. I do tend to bring up advanced paternal age with patients. And while the committee used 40 years old, they also note that there is no, no universally agreed upon definition of older male. Most of the studies they looked at used 40, so they used 40, but it's not that once you reach 40, suddenly your, your risk jumps up. It's gradual. So the older the patient, the more important it is to bring these issues. I'll mention it to some 40-year-olds as they approach 50. I mention it to every one of them. On the other hand, the intent shouldn't be to scare them off because while it is quite clear that for a variety of these conditions, the risks increase, the risks for each of these diseases is still quite low. The absolute risk is low. And that's an important thing, I think, to emphasize. Otherwise, patients can often be scared off. The majority of children don't have these conditions, but the patient needs to know. And I think this tends to be more of an issue often, at least in my population, for those for vasectomy reversals where the men tend to be older in general, and we'll get patients 50 and 60. And that's where I think it's very important to bring it up. Yeah, I think this has become an issue in terms of men hearing about the possibility of freezing their sperm when they're younger. And I think that's still kind of a controversial issue. But 
Um, this particular guideline with respect to advanced paternal age was based on expert opinion. Anything to add, Dr. Sandlow, or we can go on to the next question? No, I think uh, Dr. Simon covered that extremely well. Okay, well, one of the guidelines addresses the evidence of higher morbidity and mortality in patients with male factor infertility. And, um, you know, this is a pretty significant issue moving forward. How do you guys feel about mentioning this to your patients? I actually had a patient's wife come in and was crying because she thought her husband was at a much higher risk of dying early. And, you know, how do you address this? Do you address it when patients bring it up? Do you address it at all? How do you address this with your patients at the present time? Well, I actually don't address it unless they bring it up. This work that's been done is extremely important, but I think that there are some important caveats. A lot of the things that can impact male fertility are things that impact our overall health. So morbid obesity, hormone issues, diabetes. And so I think that rather than making a blanket statement, I typically try to counsel patients on an individual basis and on their own individual, you know, comorbidities. But I certainly don't bring it up as, oh, well, the fact that you are having fertility issues means that you are going to have a higher risk of heart disease or a higher risk of, of cancer. Both of these things have been, you know, mentioned in some of the papers. So I think that you do have to take some of that with a grain of salt. I think it really goes back to what both Mark and I said earlier, which is that there is evidence that men who have fertility issues um, often will have other issues as well. And that, that this is a way that we get men in to, to see a physician that normally wouldn't go. Dr. Sigmund? I agree completely with, with Dr. Sandlow. Um, I don't routinely bring up that there's an association between mortality. I think that's of interest for research purposes. But as you said, it is useful to justify why the male should be evaluated. Sometimes it could be useful to convince a skeptical male to come in, but I certainly don't focus on that association. And as he said, it's very useful to know that as a clinician, because when you have these people with other comorbidities and infertility, and if the comorbidities aren't being managed, this is a good reason to manage them and have them seek somebody who will take care of that. Yeah, and I think that as we've addressed this, I think that more and more studies will probably look at this type of thing. And as the next round of guidelines come out, we'll probably have more information as to how real this really is. Moving on to the next question, the, the guidelines are pretty vague about the effects of changes in lifestyle and nutritional supplements in male factor patients. Dr. Sandlow, how do you address lifestyle issues and nutritional supplements with your patients? Well, this was really interesting. This was actually one of the statements that I had to work on. So I had the pleasure of getting to sort through all the literature. Lifestyle issues are tough because you can't control for them. I actually am probably more lenient than most in terms of what I tell my patients they can and can't do. There's very little good evidence that, for instance, alcohol has a negative impact on male fertility. So I don't tell my patients that they have to stop drinking. Now, I do tell them they need to moderate everything that they do. So things like 
alcohol and caffeine, you don't want patients overindulging, but I don't tell them they need to stop drinking coffee or, you know, their soda. I don't think that they need to stop drinking alcohol. Even marijuana, it had, there's very mixed data now about the impact of marijuana on fertility. The nutritional supplements are interesting because we've really started focusing on things like antioxidants and the impact on DNA fragmentation. And it makes sense that they should make a big difference. But the recently published MOXIE trial actually did not show a big difference in outcomes in men who were taking nutritional supplements. I think what all of these studies do is they come back to the fact that things like lifestyle and, you know, supplements that aren't necessarily um, all the same are very difficult to control for and it's very difficult to do studies so what I try to do is I try to counsel my patients to do things that make sense, that are doable, because patients are always being told what they can't do. I say, look, you want to have four or five beers a week? I think that's fine. You want to take a, uh, an antioxidant and a multivitamin? It doesn't hurt. I tell them not to spend hundreds of dollars on these things because there's no evidence that, that it works, but certainly it doesn't hurt. So, yeah, so just to reiterate, um, guideline eight says that clinicians may discuss risk factors, uh, i.e. lifestyle, medication usage, environmental exposures associated with male infertility, and should be counseled that the current data on the majority of risk factors are limited, and that is based on grade C evidence, and it's a conditional recommendation. Uh, similarly, guideline 43, clinicians should counsel patients that the benefits of supplements, antioxidants, and vitamins are of questionable clinical utility in treating male infertility. Existing data are inadequate to provide recommendations for specific agents to use for this purpose. And that's a conditional recommendation based on grade B level evidence. And I, I, I kind of reiterate what Dr. Sanlo said, which is, you know, anything in moderation is probably fine. And, you know, in the severe male factor, it can really make a difference sometimes. So I kind of agree with you with most of that. Let's move on to guideline number four and 19, which comment on male factor evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss and failed IVF cycles. Um, this is the first time that this has been included in a male guideline. Dr. Sigmund, what do you recommend for these patients and how important, how important is a physical exam for these patients? Do you think a telemedicine visit um, is enough or do you think we have to examine these patients? I think it's important to understand recurrent pregnancy loss is not the same as infertility. And therefore the need for an exam is different because the causes of these are different. I think initially a televisit can uh, suffice if the problem is not infertility and it is recurrent pregnancy loss. If the patient happens to have sperm DNA fragmentation tests that's elevated, I think they do need a physical exam because there are some things such as varicocele that is associated with elevated DNA fragmentation. And recurrent pregnancy loss is associated with both karyotypic abnormalities and elevated sperm DNA fragmentation. That's probably some of the best data on the fragmentation is recurrent pregnancy loss compared to infertility. 
other lifestyle factors associated with DNA fragmentation can be identified by the history, which you could do by a televisit, like smoking, chemotherapy, that kind of thing. I think that's an important point, because if you do have an abnormal DNA fragmentation, I think a physical exam is important in these situations. And guideline four comments on failed IVF cycles and that male factors should be evaluated for that. How, how do you approach those patients at this point? Those are becoming increasingly common, which I think is very problematic because when they have fertilization, for example, but no pregnancy, they often refer to the urologist and commonly the couple may have the impression it's definitely a male problem, but the fact is we don't have good tests for that. In that case, I think both partners need a thorough exam for risk factors, but we don't have good biomarkers for poor embryo development, and we need them. So at this point, we look for things. We know that DNA fragmentation is associated with lower pregnancy rates, so it could be a cause of this, and that may, you know, based on your exam, you may want to get that. Uh, in my personal experience, when I have these couples, I rarely find elevated DNA fragmentation. Everything turns out to be normal, and we're often left with, we're not clear where the problem is. But unfortunately, that's the state of the art. Yeah, I think this is a complicated topic, but it, I, I think this is the first time that the guidelines really address these two issues, recurrent pregnancy loss, that there may be an underlying male factor, and you know there may be situations and this is not part of the guidelines, but just kind of conjecture in terms of failed IVF cycles as to where you say, you know, if there is a DNA fragmentation issue and there is a varicocele maybe to fix it or moving forward towards the testicular sperm aspiration in those cases, do you approach it in the same way, Dr. Stanlow? I do. Typically, and fortunately, I work with an REI group that is very good about getting DNA fragmentation in these exact instances of either recurrent loss or unexplained failed cycles. And then if they're abnormal, then they'll send the patient to me. So I agree with Dr. Sigmund that I think telemedicine would be a great first step, but if they have elevated DNA fragmentation and you don't have any good etiology for it based on history, then a physical exam would be important. The ASRM would like to invite you to save the dates for the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo to be held October 17th through the 20th in Baltimore, Maryland. The 2021 Congress and Expo will kick off with the ASRM President's Gala, followed by three full days of live in-person plenaries, symposia, interactive sessions, roundtables, and a robust exhibit hall. At the conclusion of the live Congress, on-demand offerings of select sessions will become available through the end of December 2021. Registration opens soon, so look for an email from us in your inbox. All right, so let's move on to a little bit about scrotal ultrasound and the guidelines, because the guidelines basically say that scrotal ultrasound should not be part of a standard evaluation. But Guideline 21 comments on the role of scrotal ultrasound in the male infertility evaluation, and it should not be part of a routine evaluation. What are your thoughts about can scrotal ultrasound replace physical exam for patients who have a telehealth visit? Uh, any thoughts on that, Dr. Sandlow? 
So this is this is an interesting concept. This was actually a response that I remember hearing many years ago at ASRM by some of the REIs of why they didn't need to send us patients because they could do a history just like we could and they could get an ultrasound to rule out anything ominous like a testicular tumor. So what do they need to send us the patient for? However, I would say that there's a lot more to the exam than just a a simple scrotal ultrasound. And I would also point out that the most common cause of male factor uh, fertility problems is a varicocele, which is variable based on who does the ultrasound. And many people do ultrasounds differently and don't pick up clinical varicoceles or they pick up subclinical varicoceles. So I know that there are some urologists out there who are doing telehealth visits and then ordering ultrasounds to replace their physical exam. I don't really agree with that. I think that I would, first of all, I would never operate on somebody that I did not examine prior to deciding that they needed surgery. And I also think that there are a lot of things that ultrasound can pick up that are of limited clinical value. Having said that, I'm also fairly quick to get a scrotal ultrasound in anyone who I think has an abnormality on exam or an unexplained change in their fertility. So for instance, somebody who had proven fertility in the past, no reason to be azospermic that now suddenly is. I've picked up a couple of testis tumors that way that were not palpable. So I think that scrotal ultrasound is part of our armamentarium, but to make it the uh, replacement for a physical exam in, in a male factor evaluation, I don't agree with that. Thank you. Many of us in urology are familiar with the effects of testosterone on spermatogenesis, but just for the group um, as a whole, guideline 20, excuse me, 39 and 40 comment on how to treat these patients who have low T, who are symptomatic, who are reproductive age. Dr. Sandler, can you review for the ASRM why this is important and how low T should be treated in these patients? Well, I think the first thing I would say is how not to treat these patients, and that would be with testosterone replacement. So you never want to give a man who cares about his fertility testosterone to supplement his low testosterone levels. I think the reason that it's important, though, is that there's a lot of studies that that we found that showed long-term impact of low testosterone on overall male health, including bone density, as well as concentration, libido, things like that. There are several ways that we can treat um, low T, particularly in patients who are symptomatic, that will spare or even help their fertility, including CIRMS, as Dr. Sigmund had mentioned earlier, um, HCG, which acts as LH to stimulate testosterone production from the lytic cells, um, and, and this is what we look for, particularly when we're using things like clomiphene or arimidex, uh, where we're looking for abnormalities that can be treated that may not necessarily be a significant endocrinopathy. Uh, so Dr. Sigmund actually published years ago a study that showed that men who 
had sperm concentrations uh, greater than 10 to 15 million per ml rarely had a significant endocrinopathy. But I think that's different than the, the man who has fertility issues and also has borderline low testosterone. And so I think one of the things that the guidelines really helped with is giving us sort of reasons to treat these patients. We no longer call this empiric therapy because we are treating low testosterone. So we call it hypogonadism, but they don't have a true endocrinopathy where they, where they have hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Okay, thank you. So we're going to finish off with just a little discussion from Dr. Sigmund about the last set of guidelines that address gonadotoxic therapies and fertility preservation. Uh, and I'll just read the three guidelines here, and I'll have Dr. Sigmund comment on those for the ASRM as a whole. Uh, clinicians should discuss the effects of gonadotoxic therapy and other cancer treatments on sperm production with patients prior to commencement of therapy. And this is a moderate recommendation with level uh, evidence level C. Uh, next guideline is clinicians should inform patients undergoing chemotherapy and or radiation therapy to avoid pregnancy for a period of at least 12 months after completion of treatment. And that's based on expert opinion. And lastly, clinicians should encourage men to bank sperm, preferably multiple specimens when possible prior to commencement of, of gonadotoxic therapy or other cancer treatments that may affect fertility in men. And that's expert opinion. Dr. Sigmund, can you just reiterate um, why this is important and how you um, incorporate into this into your practice? Certainly. Um, the prior AUA guidance didn't address this, and I th the committee thought it was important that it needs to be addressed. Uh, there's certainly lots of patients getting uh, therapies. And unfortunately, we still are all seeing patients that have started gonadotoxic therapies, but they want a sperm bank after they've started treatment or they want to pursue infertility treatment. Guideline number 46 is consistent with other guidelines such as ASCO, um, recommending informing patients about the effects of therapy on fertility. Uh, we do know that there's a change in uh, the DNA that's detectable in sperm for at least six to 12 months. And by some studies such as FISH, fluorescent and cytohybridization studies, showing changes up to 24 months. It's therefore important for patients to understand that uh, if they're going to try to conceive, they need to understand that they can't do that with fresh sperm if they just finished chemotherapy and happen to have sperm. The other issue is that uh, the rate of sperm banking prior to gonadotoxic therapy still remains low, somewhere in the range of 20 to 50 percent at best. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for this. Lack of counseling is a big one. Sometimes there's a lack of interest in future fertility at the time because the patients are overwhelmed with the diagnosis of cancer. Um, finances can play a role. So there's a variety of reasons, and th this really just needed to be addressed. The more opportunities we have for counseling, maybe there'll be an increased uh, chance that the couples will sperm bank. Uh, finally, the, the guidelines also address, they give some direction on the uh, importance of getting multiple samples and the requirement about the numbers of modal sperm needed for IUI, which is a lot more than you need for uh, ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And there's never been guidance about that in the prior, in the prior uh, publications. 
All right. Well, thank you. Um, so I, I think that I'd like to thank Dr. Sandlow and Dr. Sigmund for joining me on this uh, podcast, looking at uh, some of the highlights of the ASRM AOE guidelines that were released in uh, 2021. Thank you for attending. And we look forward to you hearing other podcasts relating to male factor in the future. Thanks to all. Our guests today have been Drs. Honing, Sandlow, and Sigmund. Thank you all for being able to take time out to be on ASRM today. I hope we can all come back soon so we can continue to talk about this. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.